Welcome to episode 258 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Fast, Feast, Repeat, the comprehensive guide to delay, don't deny, intermittent fasting. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jenstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi friends, I'm about to tell you how to get three pounds of organic chicken thighs, two pounds of grass-fed, grass-finished ground beef, or one pound of premium grass-fed, grass-finished steak tips, all for free, plus $20 off. That's right, we're talking pounds of meat for free, plus $20 off. Friends, I love meat and seafood. My favorite way to get it is ButcherBox. It has been for years, and it's one of those things where I just sort of become more and more obsessed the more I use it. Especially with all the greenwashing that's going on today with meat and seafood, there's a lack of transparency, it can be hard to know what you're actually getting, and it can be expensive. ButcherBox addresses all of that. By directly partnering with farmers and fishermen, ButcherBox cuts out the middleman of the grocery store and directly delivers delicious meat and seafood straight to your door. And they have the highest standards. Their salmon, for example, is wild-caught. Their beef is 100% grass-fed and 100% grass-finished. Their chicken is free-range and organic, and it all tastes delicious. I love their chicken, love their meat, love their seafood. They have amazing scallops as well. And you can really find the collection of food that you want that works for you and your family. They have curated boxes, so you can get exactly what you want as fresh as possible because yes, meat and seafood that is immediately frozen is fresher than meat that is waiting out and never frozen. That's because it's frozen at its peak of freshness. It's funny because people kind of think it would be the opposite. Like, oh, I need never frozen meat and seafood. No, 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 no. You want frozen. You want meat and seafood that was immediately frozen and then shipped to you, which is what ButcherBox does. I eat a lot of steak at restaurants. ButcherBox's fillets are divine, way better than anything I would get at a restaurant. Their other cuts are amazing as well. With their seafood, I know I can trust them that I'm actually getting what they say because yes, there is a lot of scams in the seafood industry and their chicken also tastes amazing. It's free range and organic and tastes delicious. With ButcherBox, you don't have to worry about what's for dinner and ButcherBox has an incredible offer for our audience. You can have your choice of a weeknight meal essential for free in every order for a whole year. Just go to butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast and use ifpodcast to choose either three pounds of organic chicken thighs, two pounds of grass-fed, grass-finished ground beef, or one pound of grass-fed, grass-finished premium steak tips plus $20 off. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast and use code ifpodcast to choose your free offer and get that $20 off. Butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast with code ifpodcast. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons 
reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 258 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. How are you today, Jen? I'm fabulous. The weather is beautiful, although I did have to spend some time dusting pollen off of stuff today before I could sit down. I know Atlanta's pollen land, just like Augusta is. This is what I was going to talk about. I'm so glad you said that. Oh, wow. Great minds. I know. I was reflecting because it it literally turned to spring like overnight. Well, it turned to like summer for a day (laughs) and then spring. Um, And I was thinking, not that I have seasonal affective disorder, but spring comes and I get really sad. (laughs) Like, I don't like it. Now, I know that seasonal affective disorder has to do with light and people needing more light and more sunlight. So what would make an increase of light make you be sad? So yeah, I mean, I'm sort of joking because the seasonal affective disorder is about light exposure. But for me, it's the environmental pollen and springness and lack of cold makes me sad. But I was reflecting on how grateful I am for my serapeptase because I forget that the reason I started taking it almost, you know, probably eight years ago was for seasonal allergies because it just completely stops my allergy response to pollen, which is, or doesn't stop my allergy response, but it just clears my sinuses. And it was the way I was able to get off of allergy medicine. I just stopped needing it. Like I just not stopped needing allergy medicine in 2016. Yeah. I like substantially needed less, but grass is just so allergenic for me. Now, my eyes will still itch. That never stopped. Like if I rub pollen into my eyes, they'll itch. But I don't have the nasal issues that I, you know, the the runny nose. I was really, I had to keep Kleenex like literally shoved up my nose like a stopper. My nose ran so much. It was awful. Mine too. And I have not taken any kind of allergy medicine since 2016. I think it's the decreased inflammation and thinking about, you know, our our buckets, you know, the bucket effect and how much your body can take before it starts to overflow with symptoms of whatever. I gave, I talked about this analogy in cleanish, but allergies work like that. You know, if your bucket is full of other toxins, then all the pollen comes in and bam. Yeah, really hard to handle. With the fasting and the serapeptase, I feel resilient for spring. Well, that's good. 
I just I love when the days start to get longer and the 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 time change. It makes me so happy. Makes me so sad. The first day that it made that weather switch, I was so sad. <laughs> I was walking around. I was like, no, I want it to be forever winter. <laughs> You're just gonna have to move to Alaska. I know. So what is new with you? Just spring and loving the weather. That's it. How about you? Just the... Yep, I am ready. All right. So to start things off, we have three questions from Kristen. And the subject is three questions. And Kristen says, hi, Jen and Melanie. I just had a couple of questions below. And so we can go through these one by one. She says, sorry if they've already been asked before. I am only on episode 24. That is... It would be really interesting to go back and listen to one of our first episodes. Uh, That would be hilarious, probably. Oh, my goodness. I might. It might be amazing. Maybe maybe we were great. I I will say, I did go back and, you know, when I was... Several times I've gone back and looked at Delayed on Deny, like once when I was fixing some things after the pirating, it inspired me to, this is back in, I don't know, 2018, it inspired me to fix some typos and push it back out. And I was like pleasantly surprised. I was like, what if I read this and it makes me cringe? (laughs) But it didn't. It didn't make me cringe. So that was good. So maybe we would be like, wow, listen to us. We did a great job. (laughs) Or maybe we would cringe. I don't know. Might just... Today. Well, I do remember the first time someone asked us about CBD. We were like, it's probably not even legal. We don't know. Don't take it. I know. And now I'm like all feels all the time. Yeah. I Well, it, that's how fast things have changed. Oh, yeah. And feels is sponsoring today's episode. <laughs> awesome. But do you remember that, though? They were they, Somebody asked about CBD. And we're like, no, not legal. Probably. Anyway. Yeah, that's so funny. Yeah, things have really... And now there's like a CBD place on every corner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is so, so funny. <sighs> yep. Okay, so Kristen's first question. I really like the way that Kristen spells her name, too. It's C-R-I-S-T-Y-N, Kristen. Number one, she says, how do you know it's working? So intermittent fasting. She says, you have more energy, maybe the weird taste in your mouth. Are there any other signs? I don't have a weird taste in my mouth and I drink coffee during fasting. So I don't know if the energy is from the coffee or not. All right. So that is a loaded question (laughs) because first of all, we would have to define the word working. Like I could think of 10 ways to define working. You know, losing weight is one way. You know, a lot of people come to intermittent fasting for the weight loss. So if you're losing weight, then you know something's working. And I would encourage everyone if they want to know, you know, how do you know if you're losing weight? That might sound silly, but, you know, we're used to like weight loss diets where they tell you you're going to lose 10 pounds in a week or something. Intermittent fasting is not like that. So you really need to have multiple strategies for measuring your progress to know if you're losing weight because of body recomposition. You can lose fat. And build muscle, especially if you're someone who works out. And so it might not look like it's, quote, working on the scale, but you're literally shrinking in size. So if you have Fast Feast Repeat, read the scale schmail chapter because I talk about all the ways to measure your progress. And if something is changing, then you know you're losing fat. Well, that's the goal. You want to lose fat, maintain your muscle mass. So the scale is one way, measurements, progress photos, honesty pants. So if any one of those things is showing progress, then you know it's working for fat loss. But there's also a lot of other things that it's working on. I mean, autophagy, for example. And that's not really something we don't have an autophagy meter where we can tell that that's, you know, (laughs) going on. You just have to trust the process of fasting, doing good things in your body. And so you may not even know until something that's been pesky goes away. Like we were just talking about allergies. Like I know fasting is working in my body because I haven't had to take allergy medicine since 2016. And prior to that, I was at the point during peak allergy season where I was taking something that I took every day, 365 days of the year, but I had to also stack Benadryl on top of that. When it got really bad, and I felt so bad. I felt so terrible. And my nose was running constantly. It was miserable. So that's a sign that it's working. You know, I I talked to, you know, 
over 200 episodes of intermittent fasting stories now, and everyone has their own list of non-scale victories, things that have changed that show that you know intermittent fasting is working for them and their bodies. We also have health victories, like someone might notice that their A1C has gone down over the last time it was measured, or perhaps skin tags have fallen off. That would be a sign that you're correcting insulin resistance. Maybe your waist circumference is getting smaller because we know that your waist-to-hip ratio is a very important sign of health. Maybe plantar fasciitis has improved. I mean, I, I can't even list all the things that people mention as positive benefits that they experience. So you know it's working when you're seeing anything positive that has changed from before. Now, as far as like energy during the the fast from coffee, I mean, I assume you probably also used caffeine prior to fasting. So I wouldn't think that it would be super like the coffee would be different now versus when it was before. The energy that I have during the fast, you know, is the ketosis energy. As far as the taste in your mouth that you mentioned, I mean, not everybody gets the same ketosis taste. So you can't judge whether or not you're going in ketosis based on what you taste in your mouth necessarily. I mean, if you do have it, you know it. But if you don't, that doesn't mean that there's, you know, you're not experiencing it. A good resource for you might be something like Inside Tracker. I actually, this week, although when this airs, it'll be over, but I'm doing a giveaway for them on my Instagram. So definitely follow me on Instagram. I'm, I'm going to do another giveaway in a few months. So stay tuned for that. But that is something that's really, really helpful because blood work is another way you could gauge changes and improvements in your health. And I honestly mean this until I got inside tracker, I couldn't really see trends and I couldn't really see changes over time in my blood work. I guess I could have, if I had downloaded all my blood work and made my own sort of Excel sheet, which is what actually, oh my goodness, I forgot that I used to do this. That's what I used to do. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I used to make a, an Excel document and I would put all my blood work and I would try to see trends over time and try to see what was happening. And it was really overwhelming. But with Inside Tracker, it tests a lot of key markers that are related to health and longevity and metabolic fitness in particular. And then you can see your trends over time and it'll tell you how you're trending and I'll make recommendations. So that would actually be a really, really valuable resource. And what's really amazing about it is you get the tests directly from them, but you can also upload your own lab work. So if you're seeing a doctor and you have access to your blood results, which you do because you legally have have to have access, you can upload all of your own blood work and it'll integrate it into its graphs and charts and show you what's happening. So I that would be a, a good way to actually see if you're improving in your blood work over time. And then the only other thing, everything Jen said, I echo. And I was also going to comment that with the coffee, if you were drinking the coffee before, then you should be able to see either no change or a change, unless you started drinking coffee at the same time to do the fasting, in which case that would make sense that you wouldn't know what was what, which could be a possibility. Do you find, Jen, that um, that's actually a good question. Do you find with your experience with all of the members and such that when people start intermittent fasting that they up their coffee intake to, you know, make it easier? I don't know. That'd be a fun poll to take. That would be interesting. I certainly don't drink more coffee now. I just drink my coffee differently. Like I used to drink lattes all morning. And so now I just drink black coffee. So it's just different. I mean, maybe it's more because it's not all milky. (laughs) So the coffee, there's actually more coffee. But I also would often have a diet soda. So I don't think my caffeine consumption has gone up. Because I used to, like, back in the day, I drank Diet Mountain Dew all the time for a while. And that, I think, might even have more caffeine than coffee. I don't know. It's pretty caffeinated. So I wonder if, because I'm thinking about what my personal trend was, and it was, and I think at the beginning... I was doing a lot of those green tea, that ice green tea from Starbucks. Because when I, when I started, I was not as intense as I am now about all the organic and all of that stuff. I definitely upped my intake of caffeinated green tea. But then as I got used to fasting, I needed it less. And now I'm so minimal. I have literally 
a spoonful of liquid coffee in the morning or a sip, and I'm good. Oh, and here's a tip about Starbucks, everybody. Be careful about some of their beverages because a lot of the stuff is, they add stuff. It's flavored. Like a lot of their tea products, I would not recommend for the clean fast now. I mean, I know that you, that was a long time ago, but also green tea makes me queasy. Does it not do that to you on an empty stomach? No, that's interesting. I mean, plain green tea, regular green tea is absolutely fine for the clean fast, but there's a subset of people, tea, green tea especially, makes us queasy on an empty stomach. I wonder if it's like the tannins or the... Something. That's, I think so. I've read something about it. I can't remember exactly, but I would probably guess what the, you know, the question about, do people drink more coffee? I would guess some people do, but then there's the people who are like, I'm never going to drink black coffee, so I'm just going to quit drinking coffee entirely. There's a subset of those as well. So they might cancel each other out. I don't know. I think I'm going to write this down. I'm going to do a poll about this in my Facebook group. Then I can report back. All right. So that is her first question. So her second question, she says, what would you say to the haters about the negative effects of skipping breakfast? Well, that's a great question. And I actually thought about how I was going to answer this. And I actually don't get into conversations with haters about skipping breakfast anymore. Like, that was why back in the day I left all the Facebook groups except for mine. You know, why? like sometimes some of the moderators, because they stayed in a lot of different groups, and they'd come in and they'd be like, I'm having an argument in somebody, with someone in another group about something. And I'd be like, why? Why are you doing that? Stop doing that. Because... You know, we believe what we believe, and I don't have to convince anybody else the opposite. Like, I don't need to convince a hater that they should skip breakfast. They can skip breakfast or not skip breakfast. I am 100% convinced that there are positive benefits from skipping breakfast, and the research is, you know, backing that up. And, I mean, if you if you wanted to just kind of diffuse the situation, like maybe it's your mom, you know, that's giving you pushback or a friend that you don't, you know, you can't really avoid this friend because they're your friend. I would say something along the lines of, you know, who created the phrase breakfast is the most important meal of the day, right? Kellogg's. They funded that research. They found that Kellogg's breakfast was the best. Are you surprised? And like deflect it because that's really true. <laughs> I know you know this, but the history of Kellogg's, like why that cereal was formed is crazy. He was a little bit of a nut. He thought it could combat basically like over-sexual drives in men. Cereal, reducing your drives. <laughs> that sounds great. Like that's why he made it. <laughs> just, just to make you slow and dull in the morning. To quell the, um, yeah, the, the sexual appetite. Which, what does that tell you about what it's doing to your health, if that was... I mean, I'm, that's not what they, you know, promote it for now, but a little concerning. I don't waste my time going around, like, getting into arguments with people about fasting. Like, I can remember one time I was on a cruise. Chad and I were there, and we were at the martini bar, and we were having drinks before dinner. And we were talking to the bartender, and we said I said something about intermittent fasting. And he started, like, bashing it. And I was just like, okay, well, thank you. It's worked for me and a lot of people. And I didn't feel like I needed to argue with him. I just stopped talking about it, like for real. But I will say that was a long time ago. And more recently, for the past couple years, really, anyone I've mentioned it to has more of a positive perception about intermittent fasting because it's really all over the place. So it's... I find that the, the people who say negative things about it are few and far between. And the main negative comments I hear are from people who said, oh, I tried that and it didn't work for me. And I always dig in because you know me. And I'll say, so let's think about why. Let's, let's see if we can figure out what was going on. What were you drinking during the fast? And they're always like, well, I was, you know, they were not fasting clean, basically. So we talk about that. And hopefully they'll give it a try with the clean fast and see the difference. Either they, I would say 90-something percent of the time, the person was not fasting clean or they didn't give it long enough or both. All very good points. So I will refer you to two additional resources because I have done a deep dive into this. So in my book, What When Wine, if you get that, I actually have a section on this. I have a question, isn't breakfast the most important meal of the day? I'm just like looking through right now what I had written there. And this speaks to what Jen was saying about 
the whole concept of breakfast being the most important meal of the day being spearheaded by the breakfast cereal industry. So a 2013 American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, they did a meta-analysis of pro-breakfast studies, and they concluded that the majority of those studies featured biased interpretations, misleading language, improper citations, and inappropriate use of, quote, causal terminology. Basically, the majority of studies that find that breakfast is the most important meal are misleading. They're misinterpreting the data. The meaning when they say inappropriate use of causal terminology, that means that what they're doing is they're drawing conclusions that, you know, eating or not eating breakfast causes whatever effect when that's not what the data shows. You know, the data might show that it's correlational or it's probably more nuanced than this causes this. And then I also talk about a lot of like really specific studies that show the opposite. So like some examples are like a 2011 study found that children who skip breakfast feel like they could eat more at lunch, but ultimately they consume the same amount and they end up consuming fewer calories in total for the day. Hi friends, I'm about to tell you how to get 10% off my new magnesium supplement. Magnesium is such a crucial mineral in the body. It's involved in over 600 enzymatic processes. Basically everything that you do requires magnesium, including creating energy from your food, turning it into ATP in the mitochondria, boosting your antioxidant system. Magnesium has been shown to help with the creation of glutathione, regulating your blood sugar levels, affecting nerve health, muscle recovery, muscle contractions, supporting cardiovascular health and blood pressure, aiding sleep and relaxation, and so much more. It's estimated that up to two-thirds of Americans do not get the daily recommended levels of magnesium. And on top of that, magnesium deficiencies can often be silent because only 1% of magnesium is actually in our bloodstream. So that might not be reflective of a true magnesium deficiency. Our modern soils are depleted of magnesium. We're not getting it in our diet. That's why it can be so crucial to supplement with magnesium daily. I wanted to make the best magnesium on the market, and that is what magnesium 8 is. It contains eight forms of magnesium in their most absorbable forms, so you can truly boost your magnesium levels. It comes with the cofactor methylated B6 to help with absorption, as well as chelated manganese, because magnesium can actually displace manganese in the body. My Avalon X supplements are free of all problematic fillers, including rice, which is very, very common in a lot of supplements, including some popular magnesium supplements on the market. It's tested multiple times for purity and potency and to be free of all common allergens as well as free of heavy metals and mold. And it comes in a glass bottle to help prevent leaching of toxins into our bodies and the environment. Friends, I wanted to make the best magnesium on the market and that is what this magnesium is. You can get magnesium eight at avalonx.us and use the coupon code MelanieAvalon to get 10% off your order. That code will also work on all my supplements, including my first supplement that I made, Serapeptase. You guys, love serapeptase, a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm that breaks down problematic proteins in your body and can help allergies, inflammation, wound healing, clear up your skin, clear brain fog, even reduce cholesterol and amyloid plaque. All of this is at avalonx.us. That coupon code Melanie Avalon will also get you 10% off site-wide from my amazing partner, MD Logic Health. For that, just go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. You can also get on my email list for all of the updates. That's at avalonx.us slash email list. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. You know, I had an interesting conversation with Dr. Mark Matson when I interviewed him for Intermittent Fasting Stories, and he was talking about the the study that they did with kids, you know, how they say kids need to eat a good breakfast so that they can learn better. And I was like, well, there must be some great data about that. And he was talking about the study that they did. And I'm going to try to remember because it's been a while since we recorded it. And do you know how long that they tested those kids to see the effects of breakfast? They took one group of kids, kids who normally ate breakfast. So I think this is important. One group of kids who normally ate breakfast And they divided them randomly into two groups. They fed half of them breakfast and the other half didn't get breakfast. And then they did some kind of test later in the morning to see how mentally sharp they were. Oh, okay. So guess how long they continued this study? Like a day. It was one day. 
and it was kids who normally ate breakfast. So they were clearly, you know, not metabolically flexible kids. They're used to breakfast. Like, imagine if they had looked at kids who normally didn't want breakfast. That would be totally and, – and, you know, there are kids who don't like to eat in the morning, and we force them because we've been told we had to. Like, I always forced my – like, here, you have to eat your breakfast. I never woke up hungry, but I really liked the experience of eating. So I would do it completely just to, you know, because it was fun. I just think we should teach our kids to intuitively eat or not eat. Like, I would never say, all right, children, we're fasting. No, I wouldn't do that either. But if your kids are like, I'm not hungry, I don't want to eat, I would like let them take the lead. So actually, I interviewed Chris Masterjohn this week. And one of the questions I asked him This is something that haunts me, and I'm going on a tangent rabbit hole here, but it's all going to relate a little bit. Um, I always wonder why his focus a lot is about nutrients and vitamins and how do you get, you know, the most nutrient-rich diet. And he was talking about the work of Weston Price and how he found that basically indigenous cultures and hunter-gatherers and different societies all consumed one out of four categories of foods. So it was, um, do you know what these are? It was like, they consume like a lot of one of these categories. So dairy was one category, a high fat dairy, eggs and something else, egg yolks and something else, shellfish and fish, and then organ meats. I've always been really fascinated because we often talk about liver being so nutrient rich. What I don't understand is why, like, do you like liver, Jen? Like, no, (laughs) I don't. I don't like any of the organ meats at all. Yeah, I, we went somewhere to eat recently, and they have pate. And I was like, I'll just have a little of the pate. It was like a sausage and cheese andouille sausage. It was like a New Orleans kind of a restaurant. And I was like, no, I just don't like it. So interestingly, I growing up, I ate liver. My grandmother was German, and we would eat the liver, like the liver worst which is really salty and it doesn't taste, it tasted really good. Like pure liver, I I don't like. And I feel like that's the response that I get when I ask people this question. And what's really interesting is even when I was severely anemic, like very anemic, I remember thinking, okay, because I hadn't tried straight up liver, like plain, like, you know, buy some at Whole Foods and cook it. And I was like, I'm going to like this because there's no reason I shouldn't. I'm anemic right now. It should taste really good. And I, it, tasted so disgusting. And um, (laughs) and so I was asking Chris, why is this a theme? And so we were talking back and forth and we were just hypothesizing, was it cultural? Was it, you know, maybe the potential for excessive nutrients in liver? So I mentioned, this is how this all comes full circle. I mentioned how in your book, Cleanish, which I finished, by the way, which is awesome, by the way, everybody. Did you like it? Yes. Everybody get Cleanish. Because we've never talked about it. I know. (laughs) I was like, I don't know if Melanie's even read it. I have. I just finished it. So everybody get Cleanish. It's super amazing. Well, I'm glad you thought so. Yes, it's incredible. Talk about you did a really good job of covering such a breadth of information and I think providing just the right amount of detail and information so that people could walk away feeling really empowered about all of those different topics without getting overwhelmed, you know, with any one thing. That was my goal. Oh, really? Yes. The whole word empowering is what I wanted it to be. Because, you know, we, we've been joking in the Delay Don't Deny community because we've been doing a cleanish book study and some people really were like freaking out after the beginning. They were like, oh, no. And I'm like, well, look, knowledge is power. And just because you didn't know, ignorance is bliss. That's <laughs> right. Ignorance is bliss, but knowledge is power. But it's good to know and don't be freaked out because every change you make is a step in the right direction. It's better to know than not know. Yeah, I agree 100%. So I think you did a really good job of that. And so I actually mentioned it when I was talking to Chris because he was saying he wonders if we were to expose, you know, kids to organ meats, would they naturally like it? Would they be like learning in real time? Like, is it still cultural, but they're like learning in real time to like it? And I mentioned, because I'm actually going to send him the study, because you talk about that study in your book. It was fascinating. And he had, I was so excited he hadn't heard of it. (laughs) So I'm going to, I'm actually going to send it to him today. Yeah, it's an old, old study from like the 30s or something. And it was a pediatrician and they would never be allowed to do that study today. But they let the kids, these kids craft their own meals out of all these random things. And the kids were like little mini nutritionists. 
And it was like weird foods. Like, I don't remember exactly the list. Stuff we don't even know what it is. Mm-hmm. Do you remember if liver was in there or any organ? I'd have to look again. I'd have to look too. But it was definitely that type of food, <laughs> you know, that was quite the tangent. I really do think a lot of it's learned. You know, it's it's what we expose the kids to. And that's what I think too. But that's why I was really fascinated with my experience with the liver recently. I was like, can my body just not unlearn this conditioning? I mean, you're you're not hungry. I mean, like starvation level hungry. I think that if that happened, you would have a whole different thought to the liver. Like you're well-nourished. So I think that when we're well-nourished, we we can be picky in, in what we like and what we're used to. But, you know, if we were starving to death, that cockroach in the corner might look delicious. To that point, I'm really excited to interview Bill Schindler, who wrote a book called, I think it's called Eat Like a Human, and he has a TV show. He's been on a lot of TV shows, but he talks a lot about insect protein in his book, and I, I'm excited to talk to him about the cultural stigma against that, because apparently it's like if if we embraced insect protein as a thing, I mean, it's very impressive. Like the nutrients, the effect on the environment, the sustainability. I mean, it's like a win, <laughs> but the cultural vibe is hard to get on board. But in any case, back to the breakfast. So in that study about the kids who felt like they could eat more at lunch, but ultimately they consumed around the same amount. Some other similar studies were a... 2014 study of 283 adults trying to lose weight in a free living situation found no difference between eating or skipping breakfast. A two-week 2013 crossover study, men consumed either a 100-calorie or a 700-calorie breakfast. While the men snacked more following the low-calorie breakfast, lunch intake was similar for both, and ultimately they consumed fewer calories when they ate a low-calorie rather than a high-calorie breakfast. And the high-calorie breakfast also reduced fat oxidation throughout the day. And there's a lot more. And I will also refer you to a blog post I did recently called Early Versus Late Night Eating, Contradictions, Confusions, and Clarity. And I talk a lot about well, early versus late night eating, but I do talk about breakfast in that study as well. And I talk about some more recent studies in there. And something else important to consider is the healthy user bias. And I think that is probably a huge, huge factor. Basically, what that means is the type of people who eat breakfast are often the type of people following the quote healthy trends because breakfast has been posited as being the healthy avenue for health for so long. So it's hard to know if it's effects are from the breakfast or if it's from the overall lifestyle of the people following that breakfast. And that also applies to things like veganism. I mean, I guess even you could apply it to like a whole foods diet, but it really applies to anything where there's a messaging surrounding the habit as being healthy. So it's hard to separate that from the overall lifestyle of the individual. But in any case, I do think that Tides are changing a little bit in that intermittent fasting is becoming more and more popular and more and more people are skipping breakfast. But I definitely think a lot of people, I know, Jen, you said you don't get it quite as much anymore, but I think that is still when people get nervous or ask questions about intermittent fasting, it often is that question. So, oh, in the show notes, by the way, because I've mentioned links quite a bit, they will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 258. Okay. Kristen's last question. She says, right now I do 16, eight roughly, but I tried going to one meal a day. And when I did that, I would overeat. I tried 24 and 19, five. So what is a good way to slowly transition from 16, eight to 19, five or a longer fasting window? Should I just try adding one hour each day? Are some people just not cut out for a shorter eating window? All right, so there's a lot to unpack in that question as well, including the idea that you were overeating in your four or five hour window. There's two ways you might think that you're overeating. One of them is because you just are like, gosh, I ate a lot of food. That must be too much that I must have overeaten because it seems like you ate a lot. But the other way would be if you actually felt physically uncomfortable, in which case, yes, that is overeating. So 
if you desire to have a four or five hour eating window, but you're physically eating to the point that you feel uncomfortable, then you're going to have to come up with a strategy to not do that. And some people do better when they start with a snack to open their window and then they wait a little while and then they have their main meal. That'll kind of calm down the hunger so that they're not physically overdoing it and then feeling bad. Because the goal is you don't want to feel overstuffed like you overate. If you don't feel overstuffed like you overate, you probably didn't overeat. It's just that you feel it. When you do, you know you did. Other people are the opposite. They might do best opening their window with a meal and then waiting a little while and seeing if they need a little more later. So really, the key to make a shorter window work for you is to be more mindful of the way that you're spacing out your eating and stopping before you get to that overstuffed feeling. One strategy you might want to use is serving yourself less food than you think you're going to want and say, okay, I'm going to eat this now. And if I'm still hungry in 30 minutes, I can have some more. And then 30 minutes check in. Maybe your cues have kicked in. You're like, yeah, I don't really need any more. Or maybe you are still hungry and then you can eat. So just really think about, you know, are you overeating? And what can you do to change up the order of how you're eating in your window so that you don't feel the need to overdo it? Some people find that if they shift their window earlier, they're less likely to overeat. You know, some people, if they wait till late, they just start you know, shoveling the food in and, and that doesn't work well for them. So shifting earlier works. I'm the other way. I feel better if I wait till later. I have better appetite correction when I open my window. window. Really, if I open after 5 o'clock, then I really, like I really hardly can overeat if I eat after 5. Now, I could overeat. I hear better signals. So I, I hear the you've had enough signal better when I wait till later to open my window. Also, quality of food makes a huge difference when it comes to satiety cues. So think about what you're overeating. I am much more likely to overeat ultra-processed foods because my body doesn't get the I've had enough signal. So, you know, and some people really are not cut out for a shorter window because you like to eat a little bit at the time. So maybe you are a restrained eater and you like to eat a little bit. And so you like to have a little bit and then a little while later you eat something else. You're more of like grazing through that eight-hour window and you never want to have like a big meal in your stomach because you don't feel well when you do. Maybe having a big meal makes you feel like you overate, in which case a longer window would be right for you. So there's no easy answer here. I know what works for me, but that doesn't mean what it will work for you the same way that it works for me. You've got to really experiment and know what feels good to you. You certainly can try adding an hour a day, but Instead of really the time, I I think it's like structuring the way you're eating throughout your window that will help. I love that. That would be another good poll to take. Yeah. And it really also differs from person to person. There are people who do it all sorts of ways. Listeners know this, but I am definitely the type that you talked about that I like to have a lot at once. I do not do well with what you called the restrained eating approach. It's so interesting that we can, you know, have an experience of the world and somebody can have, you know, a completely different experience that we just can't comprehend because I just can't comprehend, you know, having like a little bit and that working better for me. But there are so many people that that works better for. Exactly. Yep. I am not one of them either. Me neither. But yes, the slow transition would definitely be something to try. But yeah, Jen. You answered that very well. All right. Are we ready for the next question? Yes. So now we have a question from Jorge. So the subject is doctor's arguments slash can't stop carbs. And Jorge says, I am a 43-year-old guy living in New York City. Thanks a lot for the podcast. It took me a couple of months to go through all the episodes. And now that I am up to date, it seems like an eternity for me having to wait for a week or more to listen to you guys again. He says, I have been IF since November of last year. Six days, 16-8, one day, one meal a day. My primary goal is not weight loss, but maintenance and energy. I do very high intensity training multiple times a week. I am feeling better than ever and fully convinced this IF lifestyle has helped me immensely. It's been a true game changer for me. 
I have two questions. What would you tell your nutritionist or doctor to convince him or her into IF? I will have a full and complete body checkup coming up in August, much more detailed and in-depth than a common yearly physical. And I am sure the nutritionist will raise her eyebrows when I tell her I am into IF. I know all the huge benefits IF brings. If you were in my shoes, what would you explain and argue at that level? As I think she would surely try to refute it. I would like to make her CIF is the best dietary lifestyle out there. I wouldn't even argue with a doctor or nutritionist at this point. I wouldn't. I wouldn't argue. I would just say, gosh, you, I have some resources I'd like to share with you. I'm sorry that you haven't seen them. <laughs> I mean, yeah, try to be nice about it. But right now, we're at a great point. I'm glad that we're answering this now in 2022 instead of in 2018 because we have way more resources to hand them. I would hand a doctor or a nutritionist Dr. Mark Matson's new book that just came out in February called The Intermittent Fasting Revolution. And it is the most up-to-date science compilation of intermittent fasting out there. And it it reads like a medical journal. So, you know, Chad, who has never read Fast Feast Repeat and has no desire to, when this came, I got an early copy of it. He's like, ooh, I'd like to read that. Because he likes to read medical journals. That's what he does. He <laughs> He's published in a lot of them for his organic chemistry work. And so a doctor or nutritionist that is used to reading medical journals needs to read The Intermittent Fasting Revolution by Dr. Mark Matson. It has all the science in there, all referenced. You don't need to argue about it. And you don't even need to try to convince them. You just say, oh, here's everything written by one of the most renowned experts in the entire world, Dr. Mark Matson from Johns Hopkins. And he also wrote something that was in the New England Journal of Medicine that you might like to look back at. And then boom, you're done. You don't have to explain it. You don't have to apologize. You don't have to convince them. That is not your job. I have a question I have to ask because I have to know if I've been pronouncing this word wrong my whole life. Is it renowned or renowned? I say renowned. What did I say before? Renowned. Well, I might have said it wrong. I don't know. Maybe it's a word that you can say more than one way. There are a lot of words like that, depending on context. Wasn't it you and I talking last time about words? Because you're talking about how Chad thought it was taking things for granite. I think there's a lot of words that when they flow together in certain ways, you pronounce them one way in one. Or I could have said it wrong. I don't know. (laughs) I just like to check because I always wonder about my... My, my stuff. And also, there are words that people pronounce differently regionally, which is so funny to talk about. My friend Sherry is married to someone who is Alabama born and raised, and they say things super different down there, or at least he does. I don't, <laughs> she's always telling me something that he said. Anyway, it's just, you know, it's regional. So who knows? If I said it wrong, I don't know. I'm not even sure what I said. As to everything else you said, I think that is a great suggestion. What I have done a lot is I have literally printed out studies, and not just for intermittent fasting. This has happened for other things where I've wanted to communicate something to the doctor or discuss testing something or, you know, whatever it may be. I am that patient that prints out medical journal studies and just has them and is like, here's something to consider. So for the nutritionist, I don't know the situation. Like, I don't know if this is a thing where you go to your doctor and the setup is that it's, you know, including a nutritionist visit or like, I don't know what the setup is, but I would actually encourage people, like if you're, if you're paying to see the doctor and paying separately to see the nutritionist, and if you plan to continue working with the nutritionist, because some people, this has been my experience, It's like the nutritionist is a part of it, but it's not like I actually, not that I think I know better than them, but it's not that I actually intend to work with them on an ongoing basis. They're just like part of the package or whatever compared to wanting to work with them on an ongoing basis. If it's somebody you want to work with on an ongoing basis and, you know, work on your nutrition plan, I would encourage you to find somebody in line with your goals regarding fasting. If it is such a big part of your lifestyle and you're working with a nutritionist, I just think it is more beneficial to everybody if you find somebody who is supportive. And there are nutritionists who are supportive. 100%. Yep. I've interviewed a few dietitians for intermittent fasting stories that they definitely recommend intermittent fasting 
to their, you know, patients and clients. But and there are doctors who are telling people to do intermittent fasting. Did I tell you this already, Melanie? Someone in my community shared a photo from her doctor's office that the doctor had like a photo of fasties repeat cover on the cabinet and like points to it and tells people to get it. I'm like, oh, my Lord. So, you know, it's for every doctor that's out there saying, I mean, I'm I'm definitely not one-to-one, I don't know. But for every doctor who's out there saying intermittent fasting, that's wacky. You know, imagine another doctor out there who's prescribing it to their patients. You know, I wonder what the ratio is. I certainly think it's probably flipping. Fewer thinking it's wacky, more thinking it's amazing. The seesaw is going the opposite direction, the good direction. And then his second question, he says, I understand that when you are fat adapted, you start losing the carb craving feeling. But to me, it happens that if for some reason during my feeding window, I eat or snack carbs, I have this urge to keep eating them and I just can't stop. I would like to know if this is common, if there is a reason, and if any of your listeners have had this feeling as well. Thanks again so much for all the great advice and help throughout this eye of journey. Keep it up, please. All right. So... I do not agree with the the idea that when you're fat adapted, you will no longer crave carbs in your eating window. I mean, I'm somebody who eats carbs every day in my eating window, and I don't feel like that I, I shouldn't want to have them. They they make me feel great. But when you say that you're eating or snacking on carbs and you have the urge to keep eating them and you can't stop, so many times people think they attribute this to carbs when really it's ultra processed foods. So I would be interested to know what exactly are the things you're eating or snacking on. Like, for example, cherry tomatoes. Those are carbs, right? Mostly carbs. I feel like I can only eat so many cherry tomatoes that I'm like, all right, I've had enough of those. But give me a bag of, like, Cheetos, and I have no off switch, like, for real. My brain would say would never say to stop eating those. It's the ultra-processed foods that are legitimately, genuinely designed in a lab to keep us eating them. The flavor profile, the fat and carb ratio, because those Cheetos that I just mentioned are not just high carb, they're also high fat. So, but people genuinely, if I said, you know, what kind of food is this? Probably most people would say, oh, that's a carb. Well, it's high carb and high fat. So that's not even right. So I would like you to think about when you're saying you're overeating carbs and can't stop, I would bet you're talking about ultra-processed foods, and I bet they're high-carb and high-fat, and instead just eat real food. That's what I was going to say exactly, that the type of carbs is probably key. Rob Wolf often talks about this clip from some TV show. It was some TV show, like one of those eating TV shows where a guy, he, I think he would always go and try to like eat massive amounts of food. There's some episode where he's having to eat like I don't know how many pounds of ice cream like he's like getting sick and like can't eat anymore and then he asks for french fries and then when he eats the french fries he's able to eat more ice cream and it's probably because switching back and forth like the variability of it kind of hacks our brain to keep wanting more it's playing with us, <laughs> these, these, these foods. So if it is, and again, that was an example of switching from sweet to salty, but I think a similar thing can happen if you're eating, you know, not having the carbs and then switching to the processed carbs, it can definitely have that effect. And it also can be depending on, you know, so let's say it is whole foods carbs. It also can be that some people just do better on a lower carb diet. And even with the whole foods carbs that it creates blood sugar regulation issues and like ups and downs when they do eat carbs. I do find that it's, I don't want to make blanket statements, but on the flip side of that, I think there are a lot of people who get stuck in the low carb world and think that's going to be the case if they integrate carbs back in and it's not necessarily the case. So yes, that was kind of all over the place, but yeah, I would try switching to whole carb, whole food carbs if you haven't already. And yeah. Those are my thoughts. Yeah, I just really also think a lot of people are confused by what actually carbs are. <laughs> really honestly, like like you know, like pizza and burgers and fries. They're like, yeah, carbs like that. And I'm like, <laughs> those foods have carbs, but they're also high fat. 
And also, a lot of them have a lot of protein, too. It's just the fact that they're ultra-processed. So it's it's kind of like in the common speak, ultra-processed foods are just considered carbs, and that's what's evil about them is the carbness. But ultra-processed fats are also terrible. Ultra-processed proteins are terrible. They're just ultra-processed foods are not good for our bodies. Now, because I'm cleanish, I still include them, but they're not the main part of what I'm eating. So it makes such a difference. Exactly. All right, are we ready to go on? We have another one from 2018. You were back in the in the archives. <laughs> I was. <laughs> this one is from Nitu, and the subject is periods. And Nitu asks, can I do intermittent fasting when I have periods? Okay. Short and simple question. First of all, for any question that says, can I do, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> I know that's um, a silly answer, but I think it's an important concept to consider because it's not like we're making the rules. You know, Jen and I are not making the rules. Nobody's making the rules. You can do whatever you want to do just in general with everything. And that's why I think it's so important to look at different opinions and different perspectives and seek truth and find what works for you. So I don't have the answer, the definitive answer for anything. I can just give you my opinion and my thoughts. All that said, we've talked about this a bit on the podcast before, and there is a lot of concern out there. People thinking that women cannot do intermittent fasting on their periods, that it's too stressful for their bodies, but there are so many women doing intermittent fasting doing it while they have their periods and experiencing amazing health benefits, reversing health conditions. It can become too stressful for women, intermittent fasting, independent of cycling and periods. If a female is doing intermittent fasting in a way that is too restrictive, it can definitely be too much of a stressor on the body, you know, may affect their menstrual cycle and be a, a problem there. I actually just had Cynthia Thurlow back on the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast. So I will put a link to that episode. And also her new book just came out, Intermittent Fasting Transformation. And it's really, really wonderful. She specifically focuses on intermittent fasting for females and she dives deep, deep, deep into hormones and menstrual cycles. And I, I mean, it's a very eye-opening read. Can I tell you something funny? Mm -hmm. My interview with her came out on Thursday and yours came out on Friday. Did you know that I had just, I, I interviewed her as well recently? I, did I know that? I, I might have. Well, anyway, it's just so funny. I mean, mine just, that's just where mine came up in the lineup. I didn't like put her to the front of the line. Just like I interviewed her a while back. Well, I interviewed her, it was a long time ago. Uh, gosh, it was like before Christmas, but I, whenever it was, I knew it would come out right before her book was coming out. So the timing was just perfect. It happened naturally. I didn't like move her around. It just happened to come out at the same time. In that, yeah, but it's just so funny because it sounds like to me you purposefully put hers right where her book would be, but it just worked out that way for when I scheduled her. But yeah, but the fact that they came out one day after one another is funny to me. I thought I wanted to mention that. Actually, I did interview her quite a while ago, but I, I, yeah, I purposely aired it because her book is coming out on the 15th, I believe. When does this episode air? On the 28th. So her book will already be out by the time this comes out. I wish this was a little bit earlier because I'm actually doing an IG live with her on the 18th. So sorry, y'all missed that, everybody. <laughs> so what was interesting is so I was saying to seek different perspectives and opinions and Cynthia's belief about the matter based on her research is she thinks that there should be no fasting longer than 12 to 13 hours the week prior to menstruation. It's really about finding what works for you. And you're going to get a lot of different perspectives, but something I, regardless of the approach you take and your personal beliefs, the things I do believe I already said, which is that I do think it's women can become too restrictive with fasting. It doesn't mean that fasting is necessarily naturally restrictive or that fasting by itself is a problem with your periods. I don't think, but I think women can get too restrictive in general with the fasting and then it might be a problem. Hi, friends. Now, I know most of you are familiar with the power of protein to help us to recompose our bodies, get fitter and leaner by losing body fat and protecting and gaining muscle or lean body mass. Now, protein supplementation is one of the best ways to do it. It is scientifically validated 
to help us produce high quality weight loss. Now, when it comes to weight loss, traditionally, a lot of people will do high carb, low calorie diets, and those have been shown to generate upwards of 40% lean body mass loss. Now, protecting your lean body mass and your muscle is crucial when you are wanting to lose some fat because during weight loss, you don't want the weight lost to be coming from your muscle. The more muscle you're able to retain, the more you're retaining metabolically active tissue, which is going to keep your metabolic rate much higher and help you maintain the fat loss after you have achieved it. Now, one of the best ways, as I said, to do this is through using protein shakes. I've been on the lookout for years to find a high quality protein supplement that does not have fillers, dyes, artificial sweeteners, and using cheap protein concentrate, which can cause all kinds of issues like bloating and indigestion. I finally created a protein supplement that meets my standards, and it's something that I personally use every single day, and that is Tone Protein. Tone Protein not only is extremely clean and high quality with only whey protein isolate, no concentrates, no fillers, it is also scientifically formulated to optimize muscle protein synthesis, which is going to help you build lean body mass and muscle in the most efficient way possible. I am so incredibly excited about Tone Protein. Not only is it extremely high quality and optimized to help you recompose your body. It is also absolutely delicious. We've been having so much fun with all the different flavors that we are creating, and I just can't wait for you all to try it. Now, I wanted to create a special launch discount for all of you listeners so that you could check it out, try it out, see how you like it, and test it out for yourself. In order to receive that launch discount, you can head over to toneprotein.com and sign up with your name and email address and you'll receive an email to double opt in to the list and you'll be the first to know when Tone Protein is available to order and you will also receive that exclusive launch discount. It is going to be the biggest discount that we ever offer on Tone Protein. So I really want all of you to be able to receive it. So be sure to go to toneprotein.com, sign up with your name and email and you'll be double opted in to that list. And I am so excited for you all to try it out. Let me know what you think of it and let it help you to optimize your body recomposition goals, get that fat loss and maintain and protect your lean body mass while doing it. Jen, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I never stopped fasting around my cycle ever. I just kept going and I got great at listening to my body. And there was always a day, it was funny, I had an app. Of course, I'm on the other side of menopause now, but I had an app where I'd been tracking my cycle from 2012 to the whole way through. I could go back and look at it right this minute, unless the app like died, which apps do. <laughs> you know, like you'll go back and look at an old app and it isn't supported anymore. But this app I used from 2012 till all the way through menopause. You know, as I was going through perimenopause, my cycle got less regular, which is very normal during that period of time. But I would find that I'd be like starving, starving one day, like so hungry. And I'd be like, what's wrong with me? Why am I so hungry? And then the next day, boom, my period would start like with like clockwork. And so finally, I got to the point where I'd be like, I am so hungry today. And I'd be like, I bet I'm getting ready to start tomorrow because it was no longer regular by that point, like I said, because of perimenopause. And boom, there it was. I could I could just tell by my appetite. So, you know, I think we have signals in our bodies for a reason. So listen, listen to your body. And if you're somebody, you know, I, I think the the question, the the concern would be fertility, right? I mean, if you're not trying to get pregnant, not, you know, in your childbearing years, then the point is moot more so because it's, you know, I mean, you still don't want to disrupt your hormones, but it's not as big of a deal. I just want to comment on that. I might be wording it in a clunky way. The question comes up because women who want to get pregnant worry that they're going to disrupt their cycles and not be fertile. And when you get to a certain age, that's no longer a factor. I guess that's all I'm trying to say. But here's the thing about that. I had Dr. Cecily Ganhart on the Intermittent Fasting Stories podcast, and she's an OBGYN. And she actually has her patients with PCOS 
incorporate intermittent fasting to improve their fertility. So the question, you know, you know, should we not do intermittent fasting? Should we, what should we do? It, it really just depends on you. You know, if you're someone with PCOS, intermittent fasting can really be a benefit to you and help you get your insulin levels down. A lot of women become pregnant after incorporating intermittent fasting when they've had PCOS. On the flip side, if you're someone who you know hopes to get pregnant and you're doing intermittent fasting, but you're doing it in a restrictive way, it could negatively impact your hormones to the point that you have trouble conceiving. But of course, any restrictive diet would be the same. You don't want to do an overly restrictive diet when you're trying to conceive, whether it's fasting or anything else. That's the time to really nourish your body. So I, I think we get caught up in periods because that's the part that's easy to see. But our hormones are doing different things all throughout the cycle at different phases. So like like you just said, Melanie, Cynthia recommends the week before it was when you would scale back your, your fasting. So like that would not be when you're having the period. It would be the week before. So there's just so much going on in your body that intermittent fasting could be very beneficial or it could be a problem or it could be neither. It just really depends on your hormonal health. Yeah, and the thing that Cynthia talks about is she says she really likes a lady's menstrual cycle because it's, you just mentioned this, like it's something you can see. So it is something that you can monitor as a sign of your stress levels But the caveat I want to provide with that is that a lot of people find when they first start intermittent fasting that it it might change it a little bit in the beginning, you know, like get lighter or skip a cycle or change, you know, length between days. And if you write it out that it does end up regulating, but that aside, it can still be a nice indicator of, you know, what might be going on. And you rewarded it to to re-message it. Yeah, I knew it was coming out wrong. That's not what I was meaning to say. I was like, I think, yeah. Because what we don't want to say, and I, this is what you clarified, we don't, we're not saying that because you don't want to be pregnant that you shouldn't pursue fertility promoting lifestyles. I was more thinking about it through the lens of menopause. And when you're no longer in your fertile years, it's a different kind, but, but still hormonal health is important no matter what stage you're in. You want, you want to have your balanced hormones. But it's, I think what I was trying to say was that it's more essential during your, your fertility years when you're try, you know, actively trying to conceive, you need to pay more attention to it than ever. That is something else in Cynthia's book. She's much more lenient with fasting. You know what? I need to double check. I'm not sure. I'd have to double check. But I don't know if she still has that recommendation for menopausal women. I don't think she does. I think after menopause that, that you don't have to fast differently. Uh-huh. I, I think I remember that. If not that, it's definitely not as much of a concern. But you do need to be more cautious if you're trying to conceive. You need to make sure that you're nourishing your body well and not over-restricting either through intermittent fasting or any diet. You know, we should, we're not teaching that to women. That's what's so frustrating. We're not teaching women not to over-restrict with any diet. We're like teaching them to restrict, and, and that's the wrong thing to do. Yeah, exactly. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. So a few things for listeners before we go. If you would like to submit your own questions for the show, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. These show notes will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 258. And you can get all these stuff that we like at ifpodcast.com slash stuff we like. And you can follow us on Instagram. I am Melanie Avalon, Jen is Jen Stevens. And I think that is all the things. All right. Well, I enjoyed it. Anything from you, Jen, before we go? Nope. All right. Well, I really enjoyed this and I will see you next week. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, everything we discussed on this show does not constitute medical advice. We're not doctors. If you enjoyed the show, please consider writing a review on iTunes. We couldn't do this without our amazing team. Administration by Sharon Merriman. Editing by Podcast Doctors. Show notes and artwork by Brianna Joyner. Transcripts by Speech Docs. Theme music by Leland Cox. See you next week.